about to listen to a sermon from Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church. As a church, we want to see whole communities captivated by Jesus Christ and living out His freedom. Hi, so my name is Thomas. Um, the Bible reading is Revelations 8, verses 1 to 5. Um, it's in the handouts, or you can pull it up in your Bible. When he opened the seventh seal, there was a silence in heaven for about half an hour, and I saw the seven angels who stand before God, and seven trumpets were given to them. Another angel, who had a golden censer, came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. The smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. Then the angel took the censer, filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came pearls of thunder, rumblings, flashes of lightning, and an earthquake. This is the word of the Lord. Good evening, friends. Good to be with you. My name's Matt, one of the pastors here. Don't freak out about the Bible reading. It's okay. Uh, it's from a part of the Bible you might know very well. And if you're new or visiting, we're in the middle of a series on prayer. We're actually in the last two weeks of it. And we've been thinking a lot about how to pray and the God we are praying to and how those two things collide with each other. And this is a particularly interesting text tonight that I think will help us in a number of ways. Because the question we, we, we have to ask before we finish this series, and the question this passage makes us ask is, does praying actually matter? At the end of the day, when all is said and done, did it matter that you prayed for something in this world rather than you didn't? Does prayer change anything? Does prayer affect anything? Does prayer alter the course of anything happening in this world at all? Or would everything just consider on the way it has or was going to go even if you didn't pray? Does prayer even matter? Of all of our prayers we offer up for God to feed the hungry, say, or for God to end oppression, or for God to stop tyrannical men, or for God to stop the, the trafficking of young children, at the end of the day, did it matter? Did any of it stop? Did any of it really happen? Does prayer matter? Does prayer actually do anything? Sometimes our prayers can seem so puny and pathetic and so ineffective that we're left feeling helpless and disheartened, thinking, well, what's the point of praying? Nothing happens, nothing changes, nothing alters. We've been praying for the war in Ukraine for over a year now in this church from this position. Has it mattered? Well, as we look at this passage this evening, we're going to take a look at that question, but from the bird's eye view. The book of Revelation takes us not into the middle of history, but behind history, above history, to the heavenly view of the way things happen. And as we look behind things and look for does prayer have a place in this? Does prayer have a power? Does prayer make things happen or not? What we see is that 
in the course of history, everything in the end is finally fixed out of God's willingness to answer prayer. And so yes, our prayers do matter. So three things from this passage about that. Now, before we get started, Revelation is in a genre called apocalyptic. You know genres? You know like historical romance novels. That's a genre. With particular ways of talking about romance and marriage and all kinds of things. Revelation is difficult to read because we don't know the genre very well. I've never read a historical romance novel, so I don't know anything about that. So it's odd. But what we do get as we read it is a, is a way of looking at history and how it works. And the first thing we see is that when we peek behind history with the book of Revelation, our prayers are surprisingly important. Now, you might have noticed in verse 1 of this passage how there is an interesting kind of set of symbols used in the book of Revelation. There are the seventh seal is mentioned, seven trumpets given to seven angels are mentioned, these pictures, these images that are given, the, the, the genre of apocalyptic is rich in symbolism and imagery. The idea behind it is it unveils what is behind reality through these wonderful depictions of various realities. But they're not like puzzle pieces that you're trying to fit together, not ideas like that. They're images that are supposed to be evocative and powerful and to stay in your imagination. They're much less like puzzles and much more like the, the glass of water you have between trying different glasses of wine. You know, it's a palate cleanser for your imagination. Now, the book of Revelation has all these sevens to it. Seven seals, seven trumpets, seven churches, seven letters, seven bowls. Don't worry too much about it. But just to make the point is these are symbols and images that are supposed to help us on our way. But don't think too hard about what each of them means. Now, in this passage in Revelation, we're being told about seals. And to make sense of prayer and its place in this scene, we have to actually go back a step to a scene a few scenes before in Revelation chapter 5. Now, this scene is one of the most important scenes in the book of Revelation. This is when you're taken into the throne room of heaven, and there's a crisis about how exactly history will find its fulfillment about how the problems of the world and problems of the earth will be fixed, of how the violence of Rome will be overthrown by God's kingdom and he will reign forever. There's a crisis because no one knows who can do it, who can fulfill God's purposes until Jesus as a slain lamb appears and this happens. Then I saw a lamb looking as if it had been slain, standing at the center of the throne, encircled by four living creatures and the elders. And he went up and he took the scroll from the right hand of him who sat on the throne. And when he'd taken it, the four living creatures and the 24 elders fell down before the Lamb. Right? Lots of rich symbols. But the point of the whole set of images is that the Lamb is the one who takes the scroll. Jesus is the one who's entrusted by God with fixing history, with resolving the violence of Rome, with bringing about God's purposes in the world. And on the scroll are seven seals. You can see in the, the, this weird image, there's a scroll and there are seven kind of pieces on it. Seven seals to be kind of undone. Now, 
Something's really interesting, though, in the next part of this scene. Something's in the room that you wouldn't expect to be there. Each one of the creature's elders had a harp, and they were holding golden bowls full of incense, which are the prayers of God's people. So in this scene, the most important moment in history, when the lamb gets a scroll, when the problems of the earth are going to be decisively dealt with by Jesus, by his death and resurrection, what's in the room when it happens? Your puny prayers. Well, not exactly our prayers. Revelation has this wonderful way of not just talking about the prayers of individuals, but the collection of the prayers of God's people, of the thousands of years of praying through the Jewish nation and the Christian people for the last 2,000 years, praying over and over again for God to fulfill his promises, for God to do what he said he would do. And in Revelation 5, you see this image of them collected together. That they are one collective whole that God has kept. That they are weighty and significant. That they are not scattered but gathered and they are something. And they are in this moment, at the most important moment in history, they are in the room. We're not supposed to miss the point of this. For the course of history, for the final outcome of things, in the ultimate crisis, our prayers matter. The prayers of God's people matter. They are in the room. Now at this point we need to remember who this is addressed to. To persecuted Christians. For the Christian people when they were the minority in the Roman Empire when there were attempts to just snuff them out. They felt under Rome that history would just roll the wheel over them. And they felt that they had no freedom and no power, nothing that they could do to stop what was happening. We can feel like this in all times and ways with what's happening in the world around us, a a helplessness, a powerlessness. But what's being said to them is that even if you think you have no power, you have the freedom to pray. And your prayers end up in the most powerful position you could imagine. It's supposed to give a sense of the significance and power and freedom at our disposable. Prayer is the most free thing you can do when you feel helpless. Whenever I speak to Christians who are working in non-profits, who are dealing with the trafficking of children, or endemic issues of poverty, or discrimination, or oppression, do you know the thing I found out all of them? They are all prayers. They are not unaware that the things they do are well beyond their ability to accomplish. And rather to surrender their freedom to helplessness, they know they can still pray. And that's what I think this does for us in Revelation 5. 
But it goes a bit further in Revelation 8. There's just a tantalizing hint in this chapter. I'm wondering, well, why are they in the room? What's the significance of it? But later in chapter 8, we see that our prayers are actually heard when it matters most. That's what we see in Revelation 8. That's on your print, uh, your handout. When he, that's Jesus, the Lamb, opened the seventh seal, the final seal on the scroll, there was silence in heaven for about half an hour. Silence, complete quiet. Why? In some ways, it's because it's the end of the sequence and another one will begin and it's at the cusp of everything happening. It's like the long pause of anticipation before the plunge or the the eye in the middle of the storm. But it's also more than that. There's a purpose to this silence. This silence is so something can be heard in heaven. Another angel who had a golden censer came and stood at the altar. He was given much incense to offer with the prayers of all God's people on the golden altar in front of the throne. And the smoke of the incense, together with the prayers of God's people, went up before God from the angel's hand. What's happening in this moment of silence? What is being brought before the very face of God? It is the prayers of God's people. Now you might think that incense is strange, but incense and prayer go together in the Jewish tradition quite profoundly. Psalm 141, may my prayer be set before you like incense, rise up before you like incense. Or in Luke chapter 1, at the beginning of the biography of Jesus, uh, we read of the burning of incense as people are praying outside the temple. Incense was like a visual reminder as people prayed in the temple of how their prayers actually went up somewhere, that they got there in the end, that they went up to the throne room of God. And so prayer and incense being given to God together, it kind of, it's one and the same image. And just so you know, this isn't kind of a mechanism of how prayer actually happens, that angels have to be involved as kind of like, uh, you know, kind of couriers in their van to get the prayer up to heaven. I think the image here is that all of the prayers of God's people are intimately handled, and every single one of them is together lifted up to God. They all make it into the very throne room, before the very face of the living God. Not one of them is missing. Every single one of them is heard. At this astonishing moment, when everything is about to happen, there's a pause in heaven so God can hear his people's prayers. There's actually a tradition in the Jewish uh, writings where God tells the angels to stop fluttering their wings for a minute so we can hear his people at prayer. That silence in heaven is a sign of God's deep intention and his always willingness to listen to whatever his people pray. And it's astonishing that it happens right here at this moment. As if the last thing that God wants to hear before he enacts his final purposes is the prayers of his people. In fact, it evokes even all kinds of questions for us. 
Why does he hear it now? Does hearing the prayers change what's about to happen? Does he kind of do a final edit on the plan based on the data coming in? Is this a demonstration of how prayer does actually change God, change what he's going to do, alter the course of things? It raises that whole question of, does prayer change God? And you know, some people answer that question by saying, no, prayer changes you as you pray. It alters who you are as a person, which undoubtedly is true. Prayer molds and shapes us in humility as we approach God and as we find repentance and faith in him. All kinds of things. The knowledge of him grows in us. At the other end, you could say, well, no, no, prayer is there, so we change God's mind about things. Now, this passage is not big enough or detailed enough to answer this question wholly, but it does give us a slant on it. The sovereign God, who has decided what he is about to do already, in his personal care and love for his people, pauses to hear them pray and acts in response to those prayers. It's like God has ordained in his purpose the prayers to be heard at that moment as part of his final plan. Prayer is his gift to us that we might participate in his very kingdom and purpose. He in his sovereign grace And his personal care of us fulfills his promises in response to what we ask him to do. This is an astonishing reality. And it leads us to the final thing that really, if this is true, our prayers are more powerful than we could imagine. Way more powerful than we could imagine. Now, what happens next is not for the faint of heart. And it may make you feel uncomfortable. Here's what happens. Then the angel took the censer that he offered the prayers with, with the incense, and filled it with fire from the altar, and hurled it on the earth. And there came peals of thunder and rumblings and flashing of lightning and an earthquake. The censer that once held the prayers of God's people now holds the flame of God's judgment and becomes the same vessel from which he throws judgment upon the earth. It's a clear connection that actually the prayers of God's people are, it's like they are set on fire and thrown back down. That God answers the cries of his people with judgment, with a reckoning upon the earth. Now that might make you feel uncomfortable for a variety of reasons. You might think, I am not praying for fire from heaven. I am not praying judgment down on people. And we're not really, are we? You might be uncomfortable because you don't like that vision of what God is like. Why would he do that? Is that good? To make a little more sense of this, we need to jump back a couple chapters again. 
because there's one part in this final section where the seals are opened where we hear some of the prayers of God's people. It's after the fifth seal is opened. When he, the lamb, opened the fifth seal, I saw under the altar of the, of the, in the throne room the souls of those who'd been slain because of the word of God and the testimony they'd maintained. And they called out in a loud voice, How long, sovereign Lord, holy and true, until you judge the inhabitants of the earth and avenge our blood? You see, the censer of prayers contained prayers like this. The voice of the innocent sufferers of God's people who'd been slain because they belonged to Jesus. Those of the persecuted minority of early Christians who were crying out for God to act on their behalf, to respond with reckoning who would do these acts of violence and judgment against them. How else would we want our God to respond to the slaughter of innocent people, to oppression, to the Roman conquering force that would squash and destroy all? How else would we would want God to respond to any oppression on our earth, any tyrant, any trafficker of young children, any persecuted minority on any place on this planet? in their millions often. But with a reckoning, but with an accounting, with a justice, if he claims to be holy and true, with a true justice that reckoned those wrongs. You see, we have to choose our discomfort. Either we choose the discomfort of a God who judges, or we choose the discomfort of the cries of the innocent which are ultimately silenced and forgotten and unjustly dealt with. We, don't, we can't have both. And Revelation says that God responds to his people's cry for justice with his own righteous judgments. This is a remarkable picture. It is a full-on picture, too, that God will respond to the cries of the oppressed to the prayers of all his people, to the cry of anyone who has ever called out for God to act on their behalf, he will finally act in response to the cries of real people like you and me. Friends, do not mistake this. Your difficult, halting, sometimes puny prayers are heard And they matter. And in response to them, God will bring about his justice upon the earth. I think this final image is supposed to be one of incredible power. Of a picture of the remarkable thing that God does in response to our prayers. Thomas Torrance, a theologian, says it like this. What are the real master powers behind the world? What are the deeper secrets of our destiny, of history? Here is the astonishing answer. The prayers of the saints and the fire of God. 
That means that more potent, more powerful than all the dark and mighty powers let loose in the world, more powerful than anything else, is the power of prayer set ablaze by the fire of God and cast upon the earth. You see, the picture of Revelation is if you want to know who is powerful in our world, who exerts influence, where should you go and look? Where are they? They might be your grandparents, actually. Cass's grandma prays for me and my children every single day. It's the grandparents who lift up still their physical papers and pray your kingdom come to every tragedy they see. Who ask for God to respond to the evil they see in the world around them. It's to the child in a far-flung part of the world who has no hope but God. She is exerting her power in crying out to him and she is more powerful than the most mighty tyrant on earth. The movers and the shakers of our day are those who bend their knees at prayer. And our God sets their prayers alight and will finally respond in the perfection of his purposes in judgment and justice and righteousness and truth. Friend, do not give up on your prayers. Do not give up on this world. When they feel puny and pathetic, remember this. Remember there is nothing more powerful on this earth than your prayers and the God who hears them. Amen. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for this wonderful text this evening. And Father, we ask for it to cleanse the imagination of our hearts and our helplessness and our powerlessness and our sense of foreboding about the way things are and the way things always will be. Father, fix in our hearts tonight the the power of the simple and the puny and the pathetic prayer that you always hear. And ultimately, one day, you will respond to finally, powerfully, and mightily in the person of Jesus. And it's his name, in his name we pray. Amen. listening to the Newtown Erskineville Anglican Church podcast. For more audio content and information about our church, please visit neac.com.au.